0: Santa Clara University just did a big study that found that one-third of all edible produce does not even leave farms in the U.S., and which is why it's now the number one contributor to climate change, according to Project Drawdown. You know, we actually saved several days in the shelf life of the product, so it's actually getting there faster and fresher. Really, we're helping to create new markets and then have our technology to really help them amplify the sales there.
1: Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital.
2: And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate.
1: And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast.
2: Today's guest is Christine Mosley. Christine is the founder and CEO of Full Harvest, a business-to-business marketplace for ugly and surplus produce. Full Harvest helps farms sell oddly-shaped and surplus produce that would otherwise go to waste through a marketplace where food and beverage companies purchase and yet save money. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's dive in. I'm really
1: excited to speak about Full Harvest. Um, For many years, I've kind of known of the problems that surround um, the industry of having to have cosmetically perfect food in our supermarkets and the waste that that creates. In fact, I think it's about 20 billion pounds of of waste um, because of uh, the desire to have perfect fruits and vegetables. Um, But first, I would love to talk a little bit about your background and, and how you came to start the company. You actually founded a nonprofit in 2002 called Musical Empowerment. Um, which aimed to democratize access to music by targeting underserved communities. What inspired you to start that nonprofit? Sure. i um, excited to tell that story
0: because I don't get to tell it often. And it really is my entree into entrepreneurship. Um, both my parents started their own businesses. They came from uh, no money and built successful businesses. So I always had them as Uh, Role models and inspiration. And so that, and I think it was just in my blood. (laughs) And so from a young age, I was just very entrepreneurial and and always looking for big problems to solve. And funny enough, um, in high school, I was looking for a science fair project to do. And I was a nationally competitive pianist. And I noticed that all the top people in my school were musicians. And so I wanted to study the connection between music and. Uh, academia as far as how well, um, somebody can do in school or, um, if it improves cognitive abilities by, by performing music. And so they didn't allow me to do this, the test, uh, because it was using human subjects. But then my dad at the time was uh, on the side, the president of the boys and girls club. And he said, why don't you go ahead and, uh, just go ahead and start teaching, students and and try to see if you know it helps and so i got a group of students together uh, that i was friends with that were learning music and were happy to volunteer an hour a week um, in order to give back to the community and more and more that i um, talked to people the more i found that a lot of my friends had extra instruments lying around and old books that they didn't use and so started a program at after school at the boys and girls club and it was so successful um, and made such an impact on the children there um, and some of which were natural born musicians and helped really motivate them and um, give them something to work towards. And some of them actually over the, the year started doing better in school and focusing more. And so I repeated that in college um, at UNC Chapel Hill. And again, it was so successful that, gosh, I, I can't believe it's been 17 years, um, but it's now turned into a national nonprofit um, and I'm on the board of that. and so really, um, that was my first venture, if you will, and just loved every minute of it and loved bringing people together to solve a big problem where you had this excess of music and um, instruments and and students time and somebody uh, with a need where they couldn't afford music lessons. and now not only do these, Students um, learn music, but they've performed better in school. Some of them have gotten scholarships uh, to colleges. And on top of that, they've built a great mentorship bond between college students and the local underserved communities. So it's really great. So what's the scale
2: of that program now?
0: Um, We're at about seven universities nationwide and hundreds of students that get Uh, access. It was only turned into a national nonprofit about three years ago. So we're right in the process of scaling it further nationally. It's primarily on the East coast, but universities in North Carolina, Dartmouth, um, and we're expanding from there. Interesting.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating. That's incredible. And you know, something that you said really stands out to me, which is having parents who are entrepreneurs. In fact, Ed, Ed, family, um, had a number of entrepreneurs in it. And it, at least from observing him, it seems like second nature. How did you learn entrepreneurship and that mindset from your parents?
0: Literally, my, my mother used to sew our clothes when we were young and my dad helped build our first house. So to see that um, go from that to remembering when I was eight or nine years old, my mom getting her first office and us sitting on the floor eating pizza and eating by candlelight um, and watching her renovate the the house into an office and build her business, um, you know, and me helping for free on summers to answer phone calls and stuff envelopes. It just really, um, I loved just experiencing all the blood, sweat and tears that went into it and seeing how much came out of that and how successful they were able to become. So I think that that's really was inspirational to me and um, taught me how much, you know, work goes into something, but how rewarding it is to see the, the payoff.
2: One of the things that I've always seen about entrepreneurship, at least in my own life, is I think a lot of people who could be great entrepreneurs just sort of have a fear of failure. And one of the benefits of having entrepreneurial parents is you get to see their failures, ups and downs, good years, bad years, and you see that life goes on no matter what. And you kind of lose that fear of identity, that a failure uh, might, might affect your identity. Do you feel that um, the same kind of avenue and the advantage of having entrepreneurial parents, or did it have a different effect on you?
0: It's a really good question. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I saw both of my parents struggle um, certain times within their experience, but then I also saw them um, win huge awards for their work and, you know, and move past it. So I definitely think that's part of it. I think the other really big piece, because I've really been trying to understand myself, why I, you know, don't have nearly as fear of a failure as most people, um, or in a higher risk profile. And I think just watching that, yes, it was some risk, but the rewards were so large, but also I had such supportive parents, you know, they supported anything I did. Um, You know, and I think that also really helped because it made me not afraid to take chances and not to do and and to not do things. Um, When I was 15, I said I wanted to go to Japan for the summer and they said, absolutely, if you get accepted to this program, go for it. And I don't know, you know, most families that would, you know, be so supportive of that and that, you know, entree overseas at a young age on my own um, also, you know, just started kicking off uh, that confidence that, you know, when you take risks and you do something, you might be you know, that might be outside of your comfort zone that it can really pay off.
2: Yeah. I was just in Japan for the first time last year and I was surprised how perfect their produce is over there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um,
2: even more than ours.
0: Yeah. They definitely have a um, style for perfection over there. I appreciate that in some aspects, but, um, yeah, I, I think in general, we need to all be better about not caring so much about what our produce looks like.
2: (laughs) Might talk about that today yeah (laughs) that's a
1: great transition um to speaking about full harvest you founded the company five years ago and as one of really the first marketplaces for so-called ugly food tell us what ugly food is
0: a lot of people weren't even aware of this issue even just five years ago and um what happened was a report came out called wasted that brought to light a 2009 report called the Hull Report um, and really showed the world for the first time the problem in data, which is that at the time they thought it was only 40% of food waste. Now more data has come out that it's even larger of a problem, but um, 40% of food being wasted along the supply chain. And what wasn't captured yet up until a few months ago was prior to once food gets into the supply chain, what was happening at the farm level. And Santa Clara University just did a big study that found that one third of all edible produce does not even leave farms in the U.S. And that's a staggering number, um, especially when you have people going hungry and when you don't even, that's not even included in the 40% food waste stat for the most part downstream, And um, which is why it's now the number one Contributed to climate change, according to Project Drawdown. But what's happening at the farm level, that one third, is that it is perfectly edible produce that is just simply surplus or imperfectly shaped. And what's happening is that consumers have gotten pickier and pickier over the last few years, and that has trickled down to the big retailers that have gotten bigger and bigger, and then that demand has trickled down to farms who are struggling to make ends meet. And so in order to stay afloat, they've completely changed their agricultural practices to harvest for perfection. And so ugly produce is simply perfectly edible produce at the farm level that isn't harvested um, or even a byproduct that is cut off and left behind uh, simply to have perfect looking produce in the, in the supermarket for consumers.
2: Is there anything bad about ugly produce? Like some, you know, is there any downside to using it?
0: Not at all. Um, And in fact, it's a misconception that we work hard to overcome, which is people assume that it's going bad or it's rotting um, or it's its last leg. And actually we ship direct from farms directly to the manufacturer and because of that, um, we, you know, we actually save several days in the shelf life of the product. So it's actually getting there faster and fresher. And so when people get the produce, they're shocked because they they say it looks fresher than product that was quote unquote, number one grade, uh, from, you know, a warehouse or a distributor. And it's simply that it's, you know, off shape too big, too small, Oddly shaped, a little too curvy, um, or sometimes, you know, just as I mentioned, the outside stalks or the outside leaves that are, are cut off for a perfect, you know, middle of a romaine heart or middle of a celery heart. And there's even a couple studies. Um, I think NPR posted one a few years ago that says that they've done some studies that some of this imperfect produce might even be more nutritious because it's more natural <laughs> in its form and most likely, you know, hasn't been, um, you know, isn't GMO or anything like that. And so potentially, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not to say I'm not a scientist, but there have been a couple studies that have said that. Um, and so, you know, I highly recommend that we try to help make our agricultural supply chain more efficient and consumers should have no, Qualms about eating imperfect produce. It's fresh off the farm.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I remember as a child thinking that an quote ugly piece of fruit or vegetable was fun and interesting. Um, and so I think that there is it's more of a perception challenge. But you also brought up an excellent point, which is climate change. And um, my favorite book around the holidays in 2019 was Tatiana Schlossberg's Inconspicuous Consumption, which I handed out uh, for kind of a Christmas holiday gift. And um, she definitely digs into the food industry and food waste um, and makes the case that our food waste is contributing significantly to climate change. Um, So that's a point extremely well taken
0: yeah um one of my favorite books uh similarly as passionate uh is project drawdown and they had 200 scientists over two years study um ghd emissions across different areas of um uh the world and they found previously they thought that food waste was the number three contributor to climate change but their 2020 review they just redid a few months ago and now they found that food waste is the number one way to keep the earth below two degrees Celsius. So, you know, I know we talk a lot about cars and cows and it's amazing to focus on those and the plastic problem, all of them super important, but I think that now is the time that we need to urgently come together and work aggressively on solutions across the supply chain to solve food waste.
2: Why do these farmers and juice manufacturers or soup manufacturers not figure why have they not figured this out? Like, it seems like, um, like what has been the barrier? That's a great question. And I think
0: what's important to uh, note is what the current supply chain looks like. And right now, um, majority of produce is sold offline over email, phone calls, checks, through the mail. Um, and one produce item could be 10, 15 emails back and forth, just negotiating and getting an order. And so the bottom line is, um, there's no technology right now. And it's because 80% of brokers and distributors are 20 employees or less their mom and pops. So they'll never really become tech companies. And the other 20% of brokers and distributors are massive companies like Cisco, Sedexo, us foods and they also you know have challenges with um you know developing technology and and moving quickly because you know it's the innovators dilemma situation and so really um it's been challenging i think for the existing supply chain to use technology and you absolutely need technology to solve this problem at scale the metaphor that i always give is imagine if airbnb tried to scale over the phone There's no way that that would work trying to, you know, move something quickly on your small network and call around to see if somebody wants your extra room, but a marketplace unlocked multi-billions of dollars of excess inventory and excess revenue, right? And so that's exactly what's happening in agriculture. These farms are trying to sell their excess inventory that's very perishable very quickly over the phone within their small local network. And it's just not worth their time and energy they're trying to stay afloat and there's trying to cater to the Walmarts and Costco's and Safeways of the world. And if they lose that business, they're out of business and, you know, they're expecting perfection or they're trying to cater to perfection. And so they need that marketplace where they can be incentivized almost as a free sales force that within a few clicks, they can quickly get their product out to, you know, hundred X the amount of people um, way faster uh, with very little risk and very little time. Um, And so, you know, there are a handful of mature off-grade markets like apples and oranges that um, you know, have been used for things like applesauce and orange juice, but there's still hundreds of off-grade products that are either not being even harvested because they don't know that there's markets or they don't have access to those markets um, or they're byproducts that come off of perfectly edible food that could be captured and used in some way, shape, and form to, to products. So really we're helping to create new markets, and then have our technology to really help them amplify the sales there.
1: You say that you can save buyers of food up to 30% on their produce. What is their reaction to that?
0: So buyers have loved us for a few reasons. Um, Yes, we definitely save money. Uh, It depends on the item and the volume and the location that we're shipping to. But part of our mission is to help make healthy food production more affordable. So we're always looking for ways to try to save money, um, and get them the best price possible. But in addition to that, uh, our buyers love us because they, we save them up to 95% of their time, because again, it's the difference of kind of an Amazon like experience versus doing everything over the phone and on paper and emails. And so, um, there's that, and then we have amazing customer service as well, and they're getting product direct from farms. So faster and fresher all while helping to solve food waste and having that great sustainability story that they can talk to to their customers. So there's really a multifaceted value proposition that really draws buyers to us.
1: And do the beneficiaries of your work go beyond just the buyers who are saving?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, that cost savings we've seen already help drive costs a bit down to some products uh, with customers that have been working for, with us for years. To consumers, that's actually why I started the company is I helped scale one of the first green juice companies and I became passionate about uh, the fact that they were making great products, but they were $13 and how do we make more affordable green juices uh, with, you know, innovative ways along the supply chain. And so it is part of something that I care deeply about is making sure that we're trying to make healthy products more affordable. So, you know, that is starting to happen and not only that, but consumers now are able to have an impact on helping solve food waste just by purchasing products that utilize full harvest.
1: Was that Blueprint Clean?
0: Uh, no, I I worked for Organic Avenue. They were they were okay. started right around the same time. Too. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Fascinating, because because those those companies really sparked the the movement of yeah, cleansing. for sure. <laughs> yep. It's not a $3, 4000000000 billion
2: dollar
1: industry. <laughs> so let's turn to you. Um, I would love to learn a little bit more about what your morning routine looks like, what you do to get ready for running your company every single day, um, and any sorts of um, perhaps health tips since you have worked in the juicing industry that you utilize to optimize your performance.
0: Sure. So... Um, I'm not a morning person. (laughs) Uh, So I think that's something that I struggle with and other entrepreneur friends that aren't struggle with as well, because I've I've been reading a lot on studies lately on sleep. And, um, you know, there really are people that are wired to be late night people or morning people. And usually it's the late night owls that um, get less sleep overall on average throughout their life, because they stay up late, but they actually Um, have to get up at the same time as everybody else, especially when you're CEO running a company. So I actually um, work very late hours. That's when I get my energy. Um, But then I, you know, wake up probably as late as I possibly can, um, in order to get out the door. Um, But I do usually try to make sure I meditate uh, before I go into work, uh, which is a practice that I've gotten better and better at. And it's really made a huge difference this past year. Uh, But usually it it looks like me waking up as late as possible. Uh, These days, um, you know, it's, uh, it's easier because I'm not having to go into an office. So I can really just start working, you know, as soon as I've gotten ready and and meditated. Um, But then, you know, I hit my day with uh, making sure that I try to do my emails and thinking, I don't schedule any meetings before 10am. Um, and then I later saw that I think Jeff Bezos and a few other big execs do the same thing because really you need that first hour to get yourself organized and to do your emails and, and just not have to, um, be distracted of, of jumping straight into executing. And so that's really helped me. Um, I've really learned to block and tackle. Uh, and then I do emails at the end of the day as well. Um, I think blocking and tackling has been a huge thing that I've had to learn and I'm still getting better at. To really be um surgical about your time and make sure that you build in uh time for lunch and for breaks um, so that you don't get overloaded and you don't burn out. <laughs> um, and then in general, you know, just try to make sure I exercise and eat healthy. If I'm organic avenue, I learned how to eat, you know, healthy and how much uh fruits and vegetables really matter. And so that's something I really um focus on and as well as um, a really good vitamin regimen. It sounds simple, but I think it's really important to be taking vitamins every day. So, um, yeah, I'd say good sleep, uh, as much as you can too on the weekends. Um, that's when I catch up usually, <laughs> um, and vitamins and, and meditation and
2: exercise. Speaking of vitamins on the morning side of things, is it uh, caffeine, uh, free coffee tea? What is your choice? I've
0: been a tea drinker for almost 20 years. So, um, I think that's, uh, helped me because I, you know, I have, uh, less caffeine in the morning, so it therefore doesn't make me really jittery and crash. And so why I love tea is it kind of is a calming yet, um, awakening feeling and it lasts for a while. So
2: I'm a tea drinker. What kind of tea is, is, uh, in your tea maker these days? Are you kind of a tea um, snob or are you like tea, <laughs> like uh, tet Tetley's?
0: I, I, I kind of am a tea snob in the sense that um, being an environmentalist and somebody that cares about health, I've, I've been reading a lot about tea bags and how actually bad they are for you if they've been like bleached or um, the chemicals that go into it. So I just started forcing myself to go to David's tea and get the loose leaf and starting to make my own tea with the little, you know metal, uh, tea, tea balls. Um, but I think, uh, you know, my, my go-to every morning is English breakfast with cream and sugar. I lived in South Africa for two years and that just hooked me on cream and sugar in my tea. So that's what I have at least two or three times a day.
2: (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. I I usually drink English breakfast tea too, Um, but I've got (laughs) one of those tea makers that's, I think it's made by Braun maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's like mm-hmm. automated where you put the tea in and it lowers it down on this magnet thing. And then it brews it mm-hmm. at exactly the right amount of time, depending mm-hmm. if it's black tea or green tea at the right temperature mm-hmm. as well. So,
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. That's
2: the best.
0: Yeah. Pretty cool. I have one of those. <laughs> yeah.
2: Cool.
1: I could not agree more with the morning free of conversations for me, sadly doing business in East Africa and India, places that are eight to 10 hours away in terms of timing, it is virtually impossible. But I think that I would be a more level headed leader if I was able to have that time. And my executive coach actually calls it having your morning like you were in the 1990s without Mm. technology and (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and um like not looking at your phone, actually I know you've mentioned emails, Christine, but I, I couldn't agree more with that philosophy. Um but thank you so much for, I don't, I don't for agree your agree with tip. it.
2: I don't agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree okay. with it. I don't disagree with it, but like I, I was up at four o'clock this morning. I mm-hmm. went to bed at eight forty five last night. Wow. And that's not, that so
0: not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm an
2: early bird, but I used to be a night owl and then something changed. I, it was really, uh-huh. it was, it was, it all happened when I wrote my, my book. Um, I started, you know, setting the alarm at four forty-five so I could write for an hour and a half before the kids woke up mm-hmm. and that just, kids reset will do it mind. too. I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. So kids will do yeah. it. Yeah. Anyway,
1: kids are a, kids are a whole different ballgame. game. Yeah. I can attest to that too. But um, you know, speaking of kids and people being in quarantine, um, we are having this discussion during the COVID nineteen pandemic. And um, actually, I have a family member that works in the food industry, also in the Bay Area, who was sharing that millions of gallons of milk are being poured down the sewers and there are some problems with market linkages, um, probably because of what you've previously pointed out, but are now being really exacerbated right now. So how is Full Harvest thinking about dealing with this time? Sure. Um, It's
0: interesting that you ask because it's, you know, the second that those images hit the news, uh, they were heartbreaking to me. I mean, somebody that and at my team, you know, we, we pour blood, sweat and tears every day into trying to solve food waste and then to see it exacerbated hugely, you know, overnight, um, while more people are going hungry, it's just heartbreaking. And so we really stepped in, um, over the last month or so, and we've been working around the clock, um, to try to help. And so we're currently, I'm proud to say working on four large projects, um, all of which will be launching in the next couple of weeks um, and beyond, anywhere from helping to get produce to food banks, to schools, to underserved communities and to people's homes. So I think that this, you know, we're grateful to be in a position to be in a help helpful in a time of need. And this, this situation just put a spotlight on how broken our supply chain is for food and how critical technology is to help deal with fast shifts and supply demand. And really that's, if anything, um, you know, we feel fortunate, but we're trying to put on the gas right now and not the brakes like most companies because um, it's just showcasing how critical what we're doing is. Um, and we just at this point need to move faster to help more. So excited to share more soon, but um, you know, we'll be doing it. We're doing everything we can to help right now.
1: I'm also curious kind of to hear your thoughts on, some cultural aspects um, that relate to aesthetics. I mean, Ed brought up Japan um, and I think that we have some conceptions around, you know, what things should look like. Um, And there's also a streak of perfectionism, I think, especially in the Japanese, but certainly in the the American culture. Um, Are you able to shift Thinking um, as a part of the work that you're doing um, to really help combat these deeper systemic problems that do have an impact on us and, and our health and our planet? Fortunately, we started around the
0: same time as a, a couple of business-to-consumer produce companies that were helping solve food waste, like imperfect produce. Um, and so they've been able to do an excellent job at educating the consumer because that's their focus. And so we feel very fortunate for, you know, some of the efforts that other people in the space have been doing. And I really also think that that, and, you know, some, some several other contributors um, there's some really great Instagram um, channels and things like that, that uh, showcase, you know, uh, perfectly, edible produce. That's just cute because it looks wonky, you know, like ugly is beautiful, I think is one of them. Um, and so it's really starting, I think, to help shift people's awareness and understanding we really, you know, we're only B2B. Um, so we're kind of behind the scenes and, uh, we definitely talk about consumers and, and what they should do um, to help because it's all part of the same conversation. But we really sell into businesses that don't need to care what produce looks like and and or enable businesses to sell product uh, to consumers if they want to. So I think, um, you know, the good news is that it, the, the industry is is working really hard to shift consumers mindsets. And I hope that it's only a matter of time till, you know, people really start shifting behavior for good. But consumers are Tough, they're finicky, and they're you know they're based on the latest trends. So I'm really hoping that people understand that this is something that's not going away, and that truly their choices, you know, at the supermarket, literally can change an entire system for better or for worse. Um, so, you know, I think I think we're getting there, and and we try to do what we can to, especially with our packaged good companies that we're working with to market to consumers that if they purchase these products you know, they're helping sell food waste as well, where it's not just purchasing the imperfect produce on the store shelf, but also purchasing products utilizing imperfect produce is a big way to help as well.
2: So if I was like an entrepreneur, well, I am an entrepreneur, but if I was an entrepreneur who wasn't (laughs) busy with a startup, and I was thinking of starting a new one, I'm like, hey, that sounds pretty cool. Maybe I'll do a food company that takes advantage of this new supply that's coming online. Um, What would be the the advice you would give to somebody who's thinking like, hey, this sounds like an opportunity for a food manufacturing business that can have a lower cost but also sustainable and maybe build their model around this issue. Do you think that's possible? And if so, do you think that um, you have any tips for for the budding entrepreneur? Haha.
0: Absolutely. So there's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurship um, on the food innovation side of things. You know, we're really working hard with some of the largest food and beverage companies in the world to innovate with these byproducts and this imperfect produce. And it's happening. And we're excited to launch several products this year on store shelf um, with these big companies, but just more needs to be done faster. And the bottom line is, um, a lot of companies aren't set up to do innovation very quickly, uh, and that's where entrepreneurs come in. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurship on creating new products with this supply because we are currently the only B2B supplier of this, and we are scaling, and we you know, um, are able to be that input and that supply chain for them. Um, and so, you know, the more that people innovate to create products with perfect produce, um, you know, friend Caitlin runs pulp pantry, for example, and it's great because they're doing amazing things with utilizing pulp into chips, you know, this is just starting to happen. And I think that the more that we do that, the better. Um, so there's that opportunity. There's also just in general, a huge need for innovation at the actual farm level with, um, automation and robotics a huge issue right now is labor and it's only getting worse with COVID and it's only getting worse with the, um, you know, border closings and, um, restrictions on permits and, and visas. And so it's causing a massive issue and more food waste. People don't realize, but before COVID there were fields going fallow and not being harvested, not because there wasn't demand, but purely because there wasn't enough labor. And so I think there's a huge opportunity there to move faster for innovation um, because the problems only getting get worse.
2: Interesting. Thanks.
0: As far as advice for new entrepreneurs, I think a couple things that uh, I've learned is that, you know, you really should set up your support system from day one because it's a very tough slog. And I think I waited a while and I just probably made it harder on myself, but from day one, you should put together kind of what you view as like your brain trust as some friends call it, but a few either friends that are entrepreneurs and that commit to kind of being your, um, confidential, you know, network of advisors that you guys can share, uh, learnings and, and, and struggles. And also, um, you know, anybody that's more experienced that has exited or is further down the line that you could figure out a relationship where, you know, you can get advice because there's so many mistakes you make as an entrepreneur. Um, and you know, they say that if there's some common ones, and so why waste time and energy and money on the common ones and learn faster from people that have already learned the hard way. And so I think that's a huge way to kind of hack, if you will, Um, you know, trying to prevent some of the basic mistakes from happening in an already very difficult, um, you know, um, setup of (laughs) life choice. But, you know, you know, I I just recently joined YPO as well. And that's been a huge, huge help. Um, And that takes a few years, obviously, to get to. But it's just made me realize, like, how much I needed that sooner. And so I highly recommend setting that up from the beginning in your own ways.
2: Absolutely.
1: I agree as well. So um, looking into the future, um, you've accomplished a lot in your career. We didn't even mention that you are the youngest member ever to be on the board of the California Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) Where do you see your career in 10 years? And where do you see full harvest? I
0: want to be able to say and have people say, you know, I can't remember a day or can't believe there was a day before full harvest. The fact that we wasted so much and did things over email and paper is insane. And I really believe that's possible. I, you know, it's sad that we're living in a world that's this, you know, inefficient right now. And this, um, you know, this broken of a supply chain, but I can't wait. Uh, in ten years, for people to say, "Thank God, we have the solution," and it was solved, because that was just insane that we were operating that way. Um, So that's really my vision. And the more that I get involved, uh, you know, I've really, you know, uh, bec- my team and I have become thought leaders and experts on solving on-farm food loss. And we went to D.C. actually right before COVID and spoke to several senators and. Um, you know, I've spoken last year at UN and at Davos and really, um, the reason I'm saying this is that the food waste conversation was not even part of the climate conversation and it wasn't even part of the ag and the regenerative, you know, agriculture conversation. And so it's this, you know, desperate need to, as soon as possible, put this at the forefront of every conversation, because it is such a massive issue that touches food insecurity, water security, climate change you know um everything it's so powerful and you know i say we only need a few things in, in, you know to survive it's food it's water and it's a healthy you know planet and we aren't focusing and prioritizing those three things enough and fast enough and so you know of course we're going to have issues because of that and so thankfully i do think there's a silver lining with this whole crisis is that it's showing how critical food is fundamentally to survive and how much work we have to do. And so I think that the more that I've gotten involved in some of these conversations, the more I've realized that, you know, I do want to get more involved on maybe the policy side in um, the longer run of, you know, getting more involved with the chamber of commerce and connections. And, you know, we're talking to the USDA right now and, and just what can we do to help further and potentially set policies that will help you know, move the needle faster, because I think that's really what we need. So I'd love to also say that I I had a part in helping to improve policies to improve feeding more people and wasting less food.
1: Thank you so much. You, You have such an incredible vision of where we should be going. And I'm really excited to stay in touch and watch you achieve that. And thank you so much for joining this conversation with us today. Thank you.
2: I was going to say, so, I had no idea it was such a big, a big issue. I was watching yeah. your Jim Cramer interview from last fall yeah. and you okay. were saying it was the number three contributor to climate change. Yeah. And, and I was and, like, and oh, scratch that out. It's number <laughs> one. Number one. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's um, big.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. This is fun. And I appreciate the um, new interesting questions. You know, it's fun to talk about stuff I
2: never get to talk about. <laughs>
1: anytime here on the beyond capital (laughs) podcast
2: yeah i don't don't know anything about agriculture um but i have been through the entrepreneurial war so more power to you and keep up the good energy thank you so much it was great to meet you guys thank you thank you
1: take care once again it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social environmental and ethical impact There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company and we can all make a difference.
2: You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review. And if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens.
1: And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time.
2: Bye, everyone.